So they, they gave us our premiere time at 11 o'clock at night mm. on a Saturday night. And, you know, I'm excited about having a brand new national television show. So Friday, the day before the premiere, I go to the Travel Channel website, type in Ian Grant, Relic Hunter. Yeah. Nothing comes up. What? I'm not even on their website. <laughs> so so I've got a, a brand new show premiering at 11 p.m. after National Lampoon's European vacation. <laughs> From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. I think we can all agree that one important measure of a successful career is being able to say you love what you do. Ian Grant is an entrepreneur driven by passion. He loves travel. He appreciates art. He is, as you'll soon hear, a gifted storyteller. And he's found a way to turn those loves into his life's work. It hasn't always been lucrative. Heck, he'll be the first to admit it still isn't, even as an Emmy-winning TV host on a national show. Ian takes us on the journey of his roundabout path into TV and how, after a painful failure and lots of rejection, he found a creative model that allows him to do what he's always dreamed of, travel to far-off places to share stories of culture and history through the people who live there. Some remember him as the Relic Hunter. His new show on PBS is called Culture Quest. Ian also runs a custom furniture business called Bjorling & Grant. He grew up in Duluth, the son of professors from Ireland. And it was while trying to save money for grad school that he happened into a job as a rug salesman. And that started him on the path into his colorful career. Uh, and so here I am, fresh out of college, no job, uh, trying to pay rent. And I end up getting a job at Dayton's in the Trim the Home Department, selling Christmas tree ornaments ah. for $4.50 an hour. Ooh, big time. And then I got the upgrade to go up to the uh, eighth floor auditorium to run the, <laughs> to run the shop at the end of that, that freaky puppet show that they would do where you the walk around. The holiday show, don't call show. It freaky. Oh my God. Well, I was trapped in there for two months during the Pinocchio uh, thing. <laughs> Did Listen, you have to dress like an elf? Uh, thank God I didn't. Okay. Oh my God! But so so that can music is running through my head every single every yes. single you know minute, and it reset every three minutes or something. So it was it was insanity. Uh, so I'm making four fifty and studying for the GREs, just living you know hand to mouth, and I get offered this job at Fagger and Benson to to be a paralegal, working on that big case, the Exxon Valdez case. Or and, and it's paid. I mean, it's well paid. Mm -hmm. Or I can take this three-month unpaid in internship at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. And, uh, and I knew that my job, my 4.15-hour job, ended, you know, after, after New Year's, after right. the Christmas holiday season. And uh, I've, I got the job offer for, from Fagger and Benson and, and Mia. Walked in, and the, the lawyer at Fagger and Benson gave me this kind of, you think you can handle it there, kid? And immediately I thought, no way in hell am I working here. <laughs> so I, I went and took the unpaid internship at, at Minneapolis Institute of Arts. 
Uh, loved it. Didn't have a job, though, suddenly. Uh, so January, it's, it's clearly winter. I've not obviously saved any money for my four fifteen hour job. And I have this internship. I'm like starting to freak out. Yeah. And finally, uh, February, no, something like that. I, I'm about to call a temp agency. I've taken the GREs. You know, I've, I did well and I'm thinking, all right, we're good to go. Mm -hmm. But I need to make money. Uh, and the Dayton's rug department uh, called and said, hey, come work for us. Well, we'll do this. So I thought, okay, fine. You know, I just wanted to sell suits and ties or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but Without holiday music playing. Without holiday music. That's yeah. a key element. Oh, my, I just uh, twitched a little bit up right now still. <laughs> it's a visceral response. But, uh, and so I wasn't too keyed up about going to sell Persian rugs. But I showed up and loved it because they were legit rugs, you know, interesting rugs. I got into the history and all this stuff. And then... Uh, Dayton's did their first hiring freeze and then started laying people off in March. So I'd only been there for a month and a half. But fortunately, the rug department was a lease department, so I didn't get kicked out. Mm. And that started me on this path of working in Persian rugs for six, seven years. The big part of that was Navab Brothers. Yeah. If you know them. Sure. So they let me, they hired me three years later, fast forward to like I'm 25 or something. And they let me manage their business, but do the buying, do a lot of the buying, do a lot of the selling mm -hmm. uh, and the marketing and all these things. So they, to their credit, let me run the gamut as far as what it took to run a small business. Did your parents know that you turned down the Fagri and Benson job? They, they did. But you know what? They're professors and they kind of, yeah, okay, as long as he's going to grad school, we don't care how ah, it happens. Interesting. Um, and, and then, but the, the, the rug business ended up being, you know, again, for a 23-year-old, I was suddenly making decent money um, and decided uh, it, it uh, ended my, my uh, future in graduate school because I, you know, I didn't want to suddenly go back to not making money. So I stayed with the Persian rug business. And then because of what Navab Brothers allowed me to do and gave me all this great experience, uh, I decided to start my own thing. And that's where the whole Bjorling and Grant uh, uh, company business, whatever you want to call it, came mm -hmm. from. Because I, <laughs> this is total Falderall kind of pie in the sky stuff, but I wanted to go travel around the world and buy stuff and bring it back. Uh, and, and, but I, I managed to make it work. In the was, was the, was that about justifying travel, that it was a way to justify traveling all over or, or was it, no. was the thrill in the objects? The thrill you? was in the objects and, and culture. It definitely was, uh, in, in the actual, I, I wanted my own business and I wanted a, a real business. I needed to make, you know, make a go of it. And what, when you say that, though, I mean, you didn't head into this saying, I always had that entrepreneurial bug and I wanted my own thing. So at what point did it occur to you, you wanted to be an owner? You wanted to have a business? At, at Naval Brothers. Okay. Yeah. No, they, they really, look, they, you know, two brothers that own this business started out of a little uh, corner shop cleaning rugs. And they built it up to a really great uh, uh, rug business in town. Mm -hmm. And... As a result, I got to, you know, work with all these designers and sell all these really amazing and expensive, you know, at, at times rugs. And it, uh, that just kind of got into my vibe and going on buying trips, uh, not, not internationally, but to, to the big rug markets in like Atlanta and New York and 
meeting with all these by nature Iranian rug merchants in midtown Manhattan or, or you know, Turkish rug merchants, you know, people from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely loved it. It, it, was, it was fascinating. And then I started to see, so you, you'll probably remember, do you remember C.W. Smith? It was a, a British colonial uh, furniture store on 44th in France, okay. I think. Okay, yeah. They, so they were importing, and Indigo, of course, mm-hmm. uh, those two were kind of, you know, the two main uh, people bringing in stuff from around the world. And mm-hmm. I had, had been in other shops a few times just because I found it interesting, well before I had uh, envisioned my own business, but really, really liked the objects. And uh, at, at, that, at that time, I was actually about to take a job in marketing in advertising and then decided, you know what? I really like what they're doing. I loved what my experience was with Navab Brothers and wrote up a, a business plan on a, a step up from a cocktail napkin. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and and uh, what was it? It was my last day was a Friday at Navab Brothers. I got on a flight for India Saturday morning. Two days later, I was sitting on the south uh, west southeast coast of Madras in India, not knowing anybody, and sitting on the edge of my bed, uh, completely jet lagged. My head's you know spinning around, and I'm sitting there suddenly in this crisis of what the hell am I doing? <laughs> what were you doing? Yeah, was I, the plan to go the buy. The plan was to go buy stuff, and and but at that point I was like, what the? <laughs> uh, and and at that moment, my bedside phone rings and. Uh, this, this lady's voice comes on and she said, is this uh, Mr. Ian Grant? And I said, yeah, th- this is you. And she said, well, I'm Mariam Basu John. And it was this lady who I had uh, a connection with through my brother-in-law's family, who's Indian from Darjeeling. They okay. live in town here anyhow. It's, it's secure. <laughs> we'll we'll map it all up. Give me a minute. We're going to map the whole thing up. Uh, uh, but, uh, um, and she said, uh, you know, your, your aunt, she's not my aunt, but your aunt in Mumbai uh, uh, set up a, a meeting and I'm meant to be your, your agent here. And she at the time was, I mean, she is still 20 years older than me. So she, she ended up being kind of like this in the future uh, forthcoming years, my sort of Indian mom, and we traveled all over Southern India together. Had you been to India? Was this your first trip? No, it was my second trip. We, we went to India for the first time a couple years before that because for my sister uh, Fiona and Ravi's wedding up in the Himalayas in Darjeeling. Uh, so our whole family from all over the world, from Ireland, England, South Africa, Australia, all these places, came to uh, 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 the Himalayas and, and had, a, had the, you know, the wedding there, this incredible wedding, because Ravi's family is, uh, they're all still, the majority of them are all still up in Darjeeling. He's mm-hmm. actually in Darjeeling right now. Hmm. Um, family of adventurers. Oh, my God, yeah. What so, brought your parents from Ireland to Duluth, Minnesota? Oh, man. All right. So my dad came over from Scotland uh, to get his Ph.D. at Caltech. And this is early 60s. Let's just pretend it's 61, whatever. And my mom came over uh, and was working for a professor at Caltech doing research. Also from Scotland? She's from from Dublin. Okay. Yeah. So they ended up meeting at Caltech. uh, And the the intention was to either raise a family in, in Pasadena, California, in the 60s, or go back to the British Isles or Ireland and raise a family there. But my dad got a job in the geology department after he got his PhD at Caltech. 
He got a job at the U of M here in mm. Minneapolis. So we moved to Minneapolis. And I think the theory was still, all right, you'll uh, do this job for a little bit, and then we'll go back home. Mm -hmm. But then he got a job at UMD in the geology department up there. And uh, it's like you can hear the, the people watching you. You're going the wrong direction. <laughs> You're meant to be. But, but the geology department at UMD was, and as far as I know, still is one of the top master's programs in the United States. Hmm. Uh, so he couldn't turn it down. And I think there are certain elements to Duluth that reminded my dad of the Highlands of Scotland. Wow. So that's how I wound up in Duluth. Was it a good place to grow up? It was a great place to grow up. I mean, 85, 90,000 people, so it's big enough for a kid, but not, not too crazy big. I mean, it was tough. This late 70s and 80s in Duluth and the Iron Range were, was a brutal time uh, economically, uh, but I loved it. So every time, so we would, we would do these, my dad would set up a sabbatical, so we'd go live in Germany for a year, mm. or set it up, he set up a study abroad program in England, so we'd live there for a year. And we'd spend every summer, uh, at least a couple months, because of course they were off as professors, mm -hmm. uh, going back to England. And I absolutely loved that. But I also thoroughly wanted, always wanted to come back to Duluth. I realize not many people will envision Duluth as being this big adventure. But if you're uh, two 20-somethings with uh, two babies, my sister's a couple years older than me, and you can either go back to where your entire family is and everything's familiar, or you can move to Duluth, Minnesota. That's adventurous. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what's fascinating is the way that you have parlayed that love of adventure and learning and curiosity into objects and use the objects as as kind of a, a means to, to get to the story. Do you feel like you went, went back to that cocktail napkin Yeah. Um, and your business plan for Bjorling and Grant? First of all, I remember walking into Bjorling and Grant in South Minneapolis. That's when I met you. And I was yeah. like, what is this cool place? And you had amazing, beautiful furniture and objects from all around the world. Did you originally envision it as a retail store or were you going to be an importer? How did it start? It was actually originally, uh, it was a wholesale company selling to s uh, stores like that around the country. Mm -hmm. So, and that, that frankly was the only way it would really work uh, because you, you know, I was bringing in eight, nine, 10 containers a year of stuff. And I, I mean, obviously Minneapolis is a big place, but you're not going to send to sell that much stuff in Minneapolis. But I would do all the big trade shows for the wholesale trade shows where furniture stores would send their buyers to High Point, North Carolina, and the uh, gift show in, in New York. So I'd do those shows twice a year. So that was really uh, what, what got the business going. And did you like that part of it? Was that exciting to you? It was. It, w it was pretty exciting. It was uh, a lot of work. It was a hell of a lot of work and, and anxious work because when I, I would do it on my own, and I'd uh, set up a booth in the piers in, in, in New York or set up a booth on my own in High Point, not knowing anyone, not knowing how any of this works. And you just wait for people to come by mm -hmm. and hopefully order stuff. So it, the first couple uh, uh, times were nerve-wracking, but, but it, it went well. It, it went well uh, to the point where other vendors were, were coming early to my booth to buy, out, you know, buy stuff from me. And then put it, put it in their booths to sell. So people, I started to get a reputation for bringing in unusual stuff that, that even, even the people that were doing a similar 
business to mine were coming to me before the shows even started to buy stuff. And if you could describe your look or what appealed to you, what was, you know, as you were gathering these objects to sell, what, what was the filter you were using? It, you know, it, so much of it was, this isn't going to help, but uh, it, it was just stuff that looked cool and interesting to me. Obviously, like art in general, you have to have this visceral reaction to it. It's got to look interesting. Uh, and so that, that was the big part of it. A lot of it had to be practical. I mean, it, it had to be something that I thought I could sell, uh, right price, right, that sort of stuff. Um, but a lot of it also was the story that would come with it. So I, I don't know, you maybe remember this stuff, but uh, the, the best example I can think of in, in Kerala, in the, or the rainforest of Southwest India, they, they, uh, would have traders coming in from all over the world. It was actually Kerala that Columbus was trying to get to uh, and, and went through America. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, and they, they were selling spices, which is what everyone was trying to get, especially pepper, which was more valuable than gold at the time. Uh, and they would weigh them with these somewhat uninteresting granite market weights that look like uh, McGrimmis, I think. You know, uh, uh, so basically just or a, or a two-ball snowman, a big, and with a big uh, iron ring through it, and they'd weigh the spices with them. But as a form, I thought they were really cool looking, really simple, but rough-hewn rock. You know, I, I liked the way they looked, and I loved the story that, that came with them. So they had this minimalist, almost modernist look to it, but the story was incredible, talking about what they were there for and... and all that that part of uh, India was about, just in that single object. Uh huh. And then you've got to convey that. You got to do a lot of storytelling. I do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is a challenge for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so you, so you went from wholesale. You did retail for a while. You also, along the way, started making furniture too. Yeah. What inspired that? So, uh, in the mid two thousands, I was going to northern Thailand twice a year because it was just a great place to to buy stuff. And there was this guy up there that was selling these, what now you can see at a Home Depot, but these raw edge tables with big holes in them and these kind of root things. But you, you know what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. right? And that's a lot of what I'm, that's what I'm doing now. But at the time I was looking at it like, what the hell is this? Because there are holes in this table and the edge isn't straight. <laughs> uh -huh. and, but they looked so cool. And so 2003, I bought a couple of them brought them back and, and set them up at one of these trade shows where all these high-end designers are coming in from New York to look at it. And I remember the designers coming down and looking at it like, hey, there are holes in this table. What, no one's going to buy that, except a couple of them like, that's awesome. And so all I needed to do at the time was sell the two that I had bought. Right. And, and that was sort of the mechanics that, that went about it. Each, each time I would buy more and more because these designers and showrooms then were starting to get interested in it. Then the economic crash came in 2009, mm -hmm. uh, and everything that I was doing up until then came to a screeching halt because all these, now remember, it's all based, I had the retail shop, but it's really, it's lifeblood is wholesale, selling, you know, 20 of these market weights to one shop sure. or, or 30 of these vases that we designed uh, to another place or something like that. The crash comes, none of these stores want inventory. Mm -hmm. So there's absolutely no reason for me to bring uh, uh, containers in filled with inventory. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, people were really loving the furniture. And this guy came into the, the shop when we had moved to the Beltline Big Warehouse location. And 
he was looking at some of these big raj tables and said, you know what, I bought this slab from this guy in, in Northern California. And uh, it went from there. I went out to Northern California, bought some of the stuff, and then thought, you know, I've seen these guys making it in Northern Thailand. I know what goes into it. I'm relatively handy. Uh, so I went and bought some tools and bought a bunch of big slabs and started making them myself. And it, it came around at the, at the right moment because I could take that leap from a business that came to a dead stop to a business that was all based on orders. So it was all mm. custom. So I would get, I mean, to get in the pure economics of it, I would get half down before, before we do anything mm-hmm. and then pay it at the end of it. And that, especially during that crash, when all of my friends around the country are having to go out of business because yeah. they're small businesses, that making those tables and, and furniture in this workshop in, uh, in St. Louis Park was what saved me. Interesting. You're, you're kind of ahead of your time. I mean, you look now at how, how many retailers, especially with the move to online, are doing that very thing. Doing oh, yeah. Made to order instead of holding all that inventory, which can be such a killer for a small business. Totally, yeah. When something unexpected happens. So yeah. very resourceful. So now yeah. you're making furniture. You're still selling direct to, to consumers. Meanwhile, throughout all of this, <laughs> there's some TV stuff that happened. There's when, some TV when, stuff, when, yeah. When did you start getting into that? And was that another passion that you always, was in the back of your head, were always like, I need to have a TV show? Yeah, of course there was. No, <laughs> no, I, the TV show never, well, I, it sort of came in. So at Gustavus, I uh, was in a, in a big uh, senior year production play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the the director, Rob Gardner, railroaded me into acting in it. I wanted to do set design. I didn't want to act. It was oh. my senior semester, senior spring semester, and I had a lot of stuff going on. Uh-huh. And we argued in his office. I just want to do set design. No, you should try out. No, you blah, blah, blah. Had you ever acted before? No, not really. No. But I'd, I'd grown up playing violin and performing and all that sort of stuff. So it wasn't completely out of, out of, the, out of my realm of, I guess, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I, and it ended up, I ended up auditioning, getting the part. And it was one of the greatest experiences I had at Gustavus, you know. Uh, you and, liked being on stage. Oh, it was awesome. It was so <laughs> much fun. And it was like this little band of, uh, you know, your, your theater group. You hang out together. It's mm-hmm. that... In many ways, it's like travel. When you travel with people, it's that saturated time, right? Mm-hmm. It, uh, it, so much happens on, on just one day of a trip overseas. Sure. With theater, it's the same thing. It, it's just this intense uh, community uh, 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 saturated time. So I loved it. And then after college, I thought, you know, I should maybe chase after this a little bit. Uh, and, you know, I would do I'd audition. I had a couple very s- small uh, plays in town here. And then when I started the business, there was no way I could do, you know, I was working 78 hours or whatever a week Mm -hmm. trying to do this business. So I couldn't do theater, but ended up getting an agent and started doing uh, some, you know, decent sized national commercials and print ads and stuff like that. What was your best commercial? Oh, the best one was, uh, no, there were two. So, so. Three. All right. So there are three. <laughs> I, I, sorry. There was one was a, was a coffee uh, commercial for Michael Graves for Target oh. right in the Olympics, the Australian Olympics, where I'm gazing longingly like I'm looking at some uh, beautiful uh, woman across the bar, but I'm shy sort of thing. 
And it turns out to be a Michael Graves coffee maker that I've been staring at all the time. That it was it was hilarious. Kind of fitting for you, love of objects. Totally. Look at that coffee Useful maker. Home furnishings. Yeah, yeah. I can't talk to it. Uh, yeah, and so there was that one. Then there was the the great one was for Select Comfort, where uh, there were four of us. Uh, the, my my very much in quotations commercial wife, and the two of us were in the uncomfortable bed. And then the other two, the other couple were in the comfy bed. <laughs> and so, you know, we couldn't, we were just uncomfortable in this bed. And this, but the spot was an infomercial that ran for years. Really? And it was a union job. So it just, it checks would suddenly show up like, oh my God, this is great. I the love gift unions. That keeps giving. Yeah, it really did. So would, that one, would you get recognized? Would you be out to no, dinner? God, no, God, no, no, no. But it was really funny. The guy in the uncomfortable bed. Yeah, hey, ah, <laughs> uh, you looked really uncomfortable. You sold that really well. No, but it was kind of funny because my sister has a, a, a PR uh, company, her own uh, PR business, and she was in a meeting with Select Comfort and opened up the brochure, and, and it was this big conference meeting, and she didn't know I had done any of this. And at, in, she opens up this brochure, and there I am <laughs> lying in bed with this other woman. And, and she get that's my brother, and that's not his wife. <laughs> it was hilarious. So that, that one was funny, but, but the, other, the, great, the, the really, really fun one was for Clarendon Clear, where they flew me to Iceland to do this polar bear, and that's online. That's on YouTube somewhere. We can still find that You today. can still find You'd have to search for it because I haven't posted it, but, but uh, if you do Clarendon Clear for polar bear plunge or something like that, but they flew me to Iceland, uh, to do this Clareton Clear commercial. And here we are way out in uh, southwestern uh, Iceland with uh, ice, you know, this glacier calving off and seals swimming around, icebergs all around, and it's freezing cold. And there's this Icelandic uh, polar bear club, and I'm jumping off the iceberg into, into the water, climbing back up on the iceberg, doing it over and over. But it was, it was, so, it was so much fun. And they set up these little ad hoc, if you think of these like big, cattle trough uh, water things, they filled these up and heated them up so that every now and then we could hop in this hot tub uh, <laughs> staring out. It, it was so much fun. But, uh, and I found out after we did the shoot, you know, it was a casting call here and around the country. And, and they, they were saying, you know what, Ian, I mean, we felt pretty confident you were going to do it. But the whole time through, there was still a part of us that worried, what if he doesn't jump into the water? It was funny. Push him. Yeah, totally right. <laughs> that seemed like the obvious answer. Yeah, just shove. There we go. You're on the clock, man. Look, he's cleared and clear. Right, right. Maybe drowning. So at what point did you start in your head thinking, I mean, was there any part of you when you were doing those commercials that was like, I'm going to be a movie star? I mean, did you ever take it that far? Did you ever think that could become your day job? I, I yeah, I had... I, of course, anyone that's auditioning for commercials has these aspirations to mm -hmm. get on a show or do something like that. And this, that's exactly how it happened. Um, I had, on the one hand, uh, I got called by a Wayman agency, who was my, my uh, agency, to go do an audition for Edelman Productions. Uh, if you remember Steve Edelman and you yeah. have his production company. Mm -hmm. To be the host of a show called Landscape Smart. Now, at the same time, or maybe a few months earlier, someone had come into the shop and done an article on me in Better Homes and Gardens about the business. Mm. So keep these two things in mind. I show up for the audition to uh, become this landscape smart host. Uh, I know nothing about gardening, but, you know, it's, it's fake, yeah, fake TV. Enough, it doesn't right? matter, right? <laughs> and I'm standing there, uh, you know, you're, you're excited, anxious about auditioning. 
and I'm ready to do my, my spiel. And John Kitchener, who at the time was the main guy at, at Edelman, who later buys the production company from, he looks at my name and looks up and he says, you're Ian Grant. And I said, yeah, can we get on with the audition? And he says, well, you have a shop in Southwest, in South Minneapolis. My wife did an article on you for Better Homes and Gardens. Oh. Why aren't we talking about doing a show uh, about your, your business? And I said, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, do, that. let's do more of that. Ah. And that's how it happened. So John and I uh, talked about uh, what we would do, which is basically follow me around the world. So uh, isn't it crazy? Oh no, how it's, it's all absolutely of insane. Your different parts finally came together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Unexpectedly. No, wow. it, it was amazing. And and so we ended up uh, hiring an Indian film crew in Mumbai, one up there, and then another crew down in Kerala for. So when I went off on one of my next buying trips. I walked around the bazaars in Mumbai with this crew filming me and stuff, and then did the same in Kerala, and, and uh, then brought all this footage back. Everything from Mumbai was trash because the film crew screwed up and it didn't record correctly. Oh. So it's like all fun. So that was all shot. Brutal. And, but the Kerala one, which is where I, I was going twice a year as well anyhow, um, worked out beautifully. So it's just shots of me walking around, buying stuff, haggling and all this. All the, and that one you can also see online. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the tape that then got sent to Travel Channel, which turned into the, the Travel Channel series that I got. Which was The Relic Hunter. The Relic Hunter. That's when you became The Relic Hunter. The Relic Hunter <laughs> for like 10 minutes. So give us, yeah. give us the, the spiel for people who haven't seen it. What was The Relic Hunter? What yeah, was the show? Yeah, if you're not one of the 132 people that saw it, <laughs> um, then this is what it was. it was. It was, honest to God, it was basically following me around the world, looking at interesting objects that come with a story. And of course, and talking about the culture as a window into the culture, but more in this kind of, uh, it's just a, a cotton candy kind of travel channel setup, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, at the end of each episode, they wanted this hook where I'd haggle with this person to buy something, which I hated because I'm, I'm actually, you know, uh, it, it just seemed like such a, I, I wasn't a big fan of that, having to do that at, at the end of each episode. But it, it was what it was, and it's what Travel Channel wanted. So that, that was the show. So, I mean, looking back on that experience, do you, I mean, was it, it, it was helpful? You learned a lot? Terrible? What, what, do, you, what do you reflect back on from that it experience? Was a, it was a big mix. Um, actually, you did an article on me right after that. After So, as you know, but uh, we, we won... Emmy for for the series, mm -hmm. but if you go backwards, Travel Channel completely buried us because <laughs> we were we they were trying to sell Travel Channel, and we were a brand new show, so they they, they gave us our premiere time at eleven o'clock at night mm -hmm. on a Saturday night, and you know I'm excited about having a brand new national television show. So Friday, the day before the premiere, I go to the Travel Channel website, type in Ian Grant Relic Hunter, yeah. Nothing comes up. What? I'm not even on their website. <laughs> so, so I've got a, a brand new show premiering at 11 p.m. after National Lampoon's European vacation. <laughs> In uh, the middle of Saturday Night Live. Right. I know. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, what the hell? And, and, uh, and then they ran out. the. So they played two episodes that night and then ran out the rest of the episodes early on a Sunday morning. And that was it. 
It's one of the most mystifying things that I don't know that that the average person necessarily understands. But when a network pays for a show and then doesn't do everything they can to promote it. But that happens a lot. Happens a lot. And and I, from the 30,000 foot view, I totally get it. I mean, they wanted to run Bourdain and Samantha and, and Zimmern and all these, their main people to get their selling price up. And they ended up selling their company for 25% more than the asking price. So mm. it worked for them. So you got caught in this bad time. Totally, it was terrible. But then, strangely enough, they submitted us for two Emmys. We got nominated for both of them, mm-hmm. won one of them, and they didn't re-up us. Amazing. So we won an Emmy for the whole series. They hadn't won an Emmy for our series on Travel Channel, I don't know when. Yeah. Uh, not Bourdain, not no, Simmern. Right, you totally. You and yeah. and then you don't get renewed. And they wouldn't renew us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'm sure they have since, and have, uh, but uh, yeah. So, so then so that part, that part, That part sucked. Yeah. Uh, and, and then the hilarity of having to actually... So, and then they actually, the Travel Channel people flew to L.A. for the Emmy thing we won. They took the two, the two free Emmys at, after they buried us, and then every, everyone else had to pay for it, pay, pay oh, for their Emmys. Pay for your own award. Yeah, oh, it was crazy. But you know what? To Steve Edelman's credit, he paid for everyone's Emmy here. Oh. He, he, I tell you what, he, uh, for me, was a total class act through, mm-hmm. the, through the whole thing. Um, so, and John, you know, the guy that we started with, uh, uh, he and I f- did the whole series together. Along with Ian Lavasseur, who was the shooter for Relic Hunter, who's now the shooter for the, the current uh, uh, show. So did that experience leave you like never wanting to go back to TV, determined to have a success, you know, in ratings as well as in, in awards? How did you feel? It was, it was a mix because, of course, it, there's no question it hurt. That, that was painful to, yeah. to win, get buried, win and not get re-upped. But then I would get all these, you know, maybe twice a year for the next four or five years, I would get calls from agents, you know, wherever around the country saying, hey, look, we've got this cool show idea. We want you to be the host for it. And uh, Lisa, my wife, will, will uh, you know, testify to this. It was this giant roller coaster because all these shows would get to the last decision maker at all these major networks. And then it, it, it just wouldn't, wouldn't get through. So, so you you wanted those jobs. I mean, you, oh yeah, you auditioned. Yeah. You were you were willing to be the host. Oh yeah, all of, day long because well, it was well, fun. There was no question about it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um. Even there was that one. There was the, the there were a few really strange shows, but there was the one medical oddities show uh-huh. uh, where based on this museum in Philadelphia where they they've been collecting strange medical body parts and and I want to learn so it's basically it's this building that's filled with all these various size formaldehyde jars with body parts in them mm-hmm. that that apparently is uh, that physicians will actually go and look at them and, and study them and stuff like that but this one this one uh, uh production company wanted to do this series about it mm-hmm. uh where I where I would travel around the world and have to find famous, famous people's body parts. What? Yeah, yeah, uh, seriously. And this, this might... Where were you supposed to look? Well, here we go. <laughs> so this might get a little too much. Well, it's a podcast. It's fine. So, right, uh, uh, um, I, one, of, one of the things I had to find was Joan of Arc's tibia. 
because apparently Joan of Arc's bones are somewhere. I beats me or tibia is somewhere like that. Okay. Uh, apparently Napoleon had a mole that I was meant to find because it's a thing. But the best was I, I was meant to go and find Hitler's penis because apparently that's a thing that was uh -huh. even in what's what's that show a uh, succession mm -hmm. i think there's a, a part in succession that's where right where the one guy one of the uh, kids yes says he just bought <laughs> bought hitler's penis yes and and i was there was part of me that thought god there's no way in hell that i can do this show mm -hmm. but yeah i would have probably done that show did that show get made? No, it never got made. Okay. Something to do with people looking for Hitler's penis, maybe. <laughs> that, that might have had something to do with might it. Have, yeah, might oh have been a little God, tricky. Oh, my God. It was just brutal. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But at least it had that element of adventure. They understood who you were, <laughs> right? That is so sunshine up. Yeah, I love it. It really So is. were you at this time, I mean, you, you still have the Bjorling and Grant business. You're making furniture. Making furniture, yeah. Um, and then were you beginning to think about what your dream show or yes. project would be yeah because i i figured you know a, a lot of this all these travel channel discovery history nat geo all of them they're not really reality television you know it's so much of it is set up scripted and stuff so so sometimes they would come to me and say look we want to do a version of relic hunter but we want you to bring some employees along and i would say i don't have employees they said, don't worry about it. We'll cast them for you. Ugh. So, And that's, that's what goes on. So, and you didn't like that idea. No, well, again, I'm sure I would have done it. But, uh, you know. Uh, Given the opportunity to sell out, you would have. Totally. It just oh, never quite yeah, got Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I never got that opportunity to totally sell out. <laughs> okay. Absolutely, yeah. But they, they, wanted, they wanted to hire a, a crew that I could yell at basically mm. all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, you, you know me. That wouldn't mm -hmm. have been my, my uh, deal. But I realized that, you know, the one place uh, that doesn't play those games is PBS. Mm. Uh, and so I knew that they would let, if I designed the right show, uh, that, they, that I could probably, you know, because of my <laughs> credentials, brief as they were, uh, and me walking in the door just clinging to this Emmy at least so it shows that I, I know what I've, I've, I've done this a little before. Sure. So we started pitching. Um, PBS uh, a, a couple ideas and then hit on this one, the, the Culture Quest one that initially started out with me wanting to do it uh, starting out in a museum, different museums around the country, very briefly standing in front of an object saying, you know, this is from blah, blah, blah. And, and but, you know, the people that made this are still alive and here's ah, what they're doing. And then we it. and then we transport ourselves to, to wherever, wherever we're talking about. And the, the nice setup for that was you get publicity for the museums uh, and maybe money from the museums because it's PBS because unbeknownst to probably most people, me as a producer, I'm the one that has to fund this whole thing. PBS does not pay for it. Yeah. Hard uh, enough to just get on TV to get them to like your idea. Then you also have to pay. Yeah. Not only do you have to get idea. greenlit like yeah. everywhere else, but yeah, then you got to get funders. So the museum thing evolved into what? Into Culture Quest. So I, I realized, you know what? Uh, museums don't have money. I should have probably figured that one Forget out. Forget that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, but, it, but the big part was it was uh, logistically, it was going to cost money to go to each of these places, flights, hotels, shooters, and that stuff. And it's taking up time. And I don't need that. I don't need that bit. Mm -hmm. So I dropped that. And, and as a result, it opened up all these different options. Because, of course, with television, you, 
you on the one hand you want your idea to be somewhat pointed but you don't want it to be so much that you're out of uh, show ideas after two seasons mm -hmm. so the culture quest one lets me entertain pretty much anything that i consider art so uh, writers to me are art uh, dancing music uh, obviously painting sculpture all these different things to me fall into that realm of art so I can pursue any of these any of these subjects around the world. So the format for the show for those who haven't seen it and I know they're going to run out right after they totally. listen to this to yeah. watch it and it is it's really well done and and beautifully shot. Um y y the idea is that you go to a place and show us the culture through the lens of artists. Yeah, through... that's exactly it. Okay. Yeah, that's perfect. Um it it's so if you, I, I, I always related to Anthony Bourdain and being super generous to us, really generous to us, it's sort of like Anthony Bourdain, except instead of using food as the window into the culture, it's using art, mm -hmm. artisanship, uh, and, you know, traditional sort of cultural things as to, uh, into that window. But the big, uh, the big deal to me, especially about art and the way television deals with uh, culture and art, they always more often deal with it in the past. Like you're talking about a culture that their good times were a few centuries ago. And, and whereas to me, a, a, I really wanted to show all the people that we're with as existing now, you know, trying to achieve things now, trying to hold on to their culture, but move their culture uh, forward. And, and so that, that's the big premise that I'm trying to go after to show not only what, what they've done in the past, but especially where it's going now. How did you pick the places and did you have to, I mean, how much research went in before shooting an episode? A, a fair amount. I mean, I would, there, and there were, there were so many criteria that, that went into it. Uh, money, I mean, uh, you know, because uh, especially a first season on PBS, uh, my budget was tiny. Mm -hmm. And my goal was just not to lose money on, on, the, on the first season. Uh, so, yeah, just simple logistics. If I'm going to Western Mongolia uh, to film an episode, I need to shoot some, another episode on the way. Mm. Otherwise, it's just not, it's just not worth it. Uh, so those sorts of things. But then uh, trying to find a main event in each episode that, that the whole episode moves towards and then build out from there, find other chapters that, that direct us into that. So those main events were what, what got me on board with, with these places. Uh, some of it, of course, was just places I wanted to go. Uh, interesting like place. I really, well, I really wanted to go to Mongolia. I mean, this- You've this, never been? Never been, yeah. And, and to Western Mongolia. So it's not just Mongolia, but it's like yeah. way out in Western Mongolia. There's not a, a continuous road all the way out to this place. And it's a, so I, I wanted to go and see these uh, golden eagle hunters. And they're not uh, that, that name is always kind of strange. It sounds like they're hunting golden eagles, but they hunt with golden eagles. Mm. Uh, and they're nomads. And they still to this day are actually Kazakh nomads out in Western Mongolia. How did you know they were going to talk to you or be okay with your camera or anything? Yeah, I don't, well, so part of that is just hope uh, <laughs> and, and charm. Good old... <laughs> Irish charm or uh -huh. something like that. I don't you just know. Just show up and say, "Hey, yeah. could we make a TV show?" With totally them? right. Who's going to object to that? But but part of it was, you know, I I knew that. Uh, I mean, they have this this festival out there, and I've I had seen some uh, photos and videos uh, about it, so I knew that it wasn't going to be. What's this camera thing you're talking about? 
you know, they have cell phones, they've got cities. Yeah. It's not as if it's going to be a strange thing. Uh, and they're excited about their culture. They're excited about sharing their culture. So I, I felt pretty good about it. But you never know until you show up, right? Mm -hmm. And you never know if everything that, that you've set up, and I'm doing all, all of this myself. So booking it, uh, getting, getting the people I'm going to interview in line, getting the flights in line, all these things that I've never, you know, it's, it's a new, it's a new uh, train for me to get on board. Right, right. Um, so there, there was a little bit of nerves with that. But by and large, you know, as long as you're, if you're going to talk to someone and they know that you're there for them, that you're not doing some sort of weird gotcha thing, they want to talk to you because mm. they, they, you know, they're, they like that. I mean, it's, if you boil it down to it's one-on-one, -on -one. it's just two people talking with each other like we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to talk to you about what I've done. Mm -hmm. The same, I, I'm basically you right. in, in other places around the world. Right. And, and I mean, you, you do exactly what I do. You I just am not going to Mongolia. That's my mistake. Right, but you might be. You never know. You know? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. What do you think sold PBS on this idea beyond your enthusiasm? Yeah, it? yeah, totally. Uh, I, it's a show about culture and art and travel. It's hard to get more PBS-y than that, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, that, that was a big part of it. Um, so they say yes, go do it, and have fun paying for it. Yeah. And what do you do then? Did, oh did you see that? Did you know that was going to happen? I did. I, okay. I did know that. And I, I knew that it was going to be a drag because chasing after, especially when you're uh, a non-existent show, um, that's going to be tough. Yeah. And so I was knocking on doors and obviously heavily relying on my old travel channel, my Relic Hunter stuff. And you know, again, not to belabor the point, but using that Emmy, that was the one good mm -hmm. thing. The two good things that I got out of that was footage that showed me in front of a camera so people could see that I know how to stand in front of a camera, but also that, that people liked it, the, mm -hmm. the Emmy part of it. So those kind of helped me in the door, but uh, the rest was just trying to describe this. And, and that, was, that was really tough. A really difficult. But once, once PBS got on board, I was able to then talk to potential sponsors. You know, PBS is psyched about this. I've got this background. Let's talk. But it was still a lot of, eh, you know, yeah. not so much. Look at the time. We got to. Uh, Good luck to you. Yeah. Uh, we love it. It was yeah. a lot of, oh, we love it. Mm -hmm. We love what you're talking about, but yeah. maybe next year. And isn't that just the, I mean, so many creatives will relate to that. Yeah. That, you know, you get some affirmation, but but the money is, yeah. is a real drag and you've got to be able to do that side of it as well. Well, and it, it, it really brought me back to my auditioning years mm -hmm. because you go into auditions after you've done it for a while, you have to go into each audition assuming that you're not going to get the job, but also going in there like you are the greatest and most perfect person for this. Yeah. So, so you go in with, with these two completely juxtaposed personalities. Mm -hmm. That was the same with chasing after sponsors. You got to go in like, hell yes, you want to give me money. But you also are there like, ah, I'm checking another one off the list right now. Yeah. Um, but the, the big one for me was, of course, Gustavus, who's our by far main sponsor. I ended up talking to them about uh, getting on board with the show because I, I went to school there and, mm -hmm. and uh, am a big fan of Gustavus. 
And I, I thought, all right, so it makes sense. They, they advertise. Mm-hmm. We'll hopefully be on TPT here in town and they'll get a lot of good bang for their buck. Uh, because relative to what marketing costs, what we're asking for was honestly, I mean, I had one, one company laugh at us, laugh at me when I told them how much it cost, as in it was way too low. Hmm. Which maybe was a problem that you know that that value mm-hmm. uh, anyhow. But you were just looking to basically cover. I just your wanted to start. Yeah, expenses. exactly. Yeah, you're not even trying to make money. You're no. just trying to get your plane tickets trying to go to Mongolia. Mongolia. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Totally right. Uh, and so when, but then I thought, so I need some sort of sweetener with Gustavus just to really hit it. And this really brings the whole thing around. I came up with them, with Gustavus, but we came up with this idea to have this course part to the, to the whole thing. So we set up a, a fall semester course that involved three different classes, and a political science class, one art history class, and one Asian art history class. And those classes followed me virtually around the world. In so, real time. You in, were there having the adventures. Yes. Yeah. yeah it, it's incredible. I, I went down... Fall semester 2019, end of September, a week before I was going off to Western Mongolia, met with the three classes, talked to them about, you know, what I was going to see, what I was going to do, how to apply to their individual coursework. And then I created this blog site. And each day in Western Mongolia, I would write and upload images and videos about what I did. Then the students back in St. Peter would log on and ask questions and and I'd respond. And we'd do that each day of the shoot. Hmm. So they're chatting real time with, with me and sort of uh, uh, the people in, in Western Mongolia. But it all culminates on the last day of the shoot. I set up a Zoom interview with uh, three of these uh, uh, Kazakh nomad 22-year-olds. Uh, so the Gustavus students in these classes got to interview these Mongolian nomads in Western Mongolia and ask them about what life is like living out in the, in the plains of, of the Altai Mountains. and. Mm. Uh, get a, a firsthand, you know, chance to chat with these these kids on the wow. other side of the world, and vice versa. The the nomads got to ask the Gustavus students, "Hey, what's it like to you know be in college at Gustavus or to live in Minnesota or the United States?" And then after that shoot, I'd go back and and meet with the classes, and we rinsed and repeated that throughout the semester. So they got to talk to this uh, you know starving artist in Kyoto, this uh, rebel fighter in East Timor, this. Uh, Aboriginal hip hop artist in Northern Australia, mm. and it was awesome. So it, it was it was this whole part to that uh, uh, sponsorship funding uh, that really brought it together. It Gust- finally gets you back to your academic roots. Totally. So I got <laughs> to show up in these classrooms and not have to go through all that pain in the ass PhD <laughs> stuff, and just show up, be the cool guy on TV. <laughs> Swear a little in front of the class and and go on my way. The kids loved it. The professors loved it because I got to just give this sort of real world life, and they could just all oh, that Ian. He'll say whatever he wants, and and uh, and so and Gustavus loved it because it was blending these different departments in in what's truly a, a liberal arts education. Totally, it seems like something that you could easily replicate, and even if it isn't in real time, that you could package it up with your episodes and now with the magic of Zoom, you were Zooming pre-pandemic. Yeah. But it seems like you could do that at other schools as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and we can take it to the, the next degree because now I know 
how much time time it takes while we're there. So I'd add a day mm. on the shoot, and I know the logistics of what what we need to look out for, uh, and we could just make it much much more involved. No, we'd so there there are a couple universities uh, that uh, we'd love to talk to, but first and foremost is if Gustavus wants to do it again, and and I get it. It for them, it's a I know they love the course thing, and I know they're going to love the sponsorship part. But it's also a, a dollars and cents thing. I mean, uh, so they, it just has to make sense for them mm-hmm. uh, from from that uh, budgetary standpoint. But so you've managed yeah. to bring together all of your worlds, yeah. all of your interests. Totally and... self serving. <laughs> yeah, but it's one in in the best way possible. Yeah. Um, what you haven't done so far is like had the huge payday. You've gotten your trips paid for. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But you haven't had that. And that isn't always the goal, right? I mean, obviously, that's not what motivates you. It's having these experiences. Is it important to you that you make this somehow a financial success? What what would be the mark of of success for Culture Quest or for your career? Or are you already there? You know, it's it's interesting because if it were 10 years ago, a travel channel, uh, I'm 52, right? Uh, and I was 39 and 40 then. And of course, then you're thinking, all right, I got to get these product lines out because mm. I, and these stories and these other shows and stuff, and I'm going to make kajillion uh, d- dollars on this. And, but now it's, I just want to go film again. And I just want to tell these stories. I absolutely loved writing and editing and, and putting these, these episodes together because each episode you know, it has a very general through line to it, but each episode is a sort of standalone uh, a story and told in, a, in its own uh, unique way. And I loved it, absolutely loved it. And as a result, I, I just want to be able to do it again. I'd like to make money at it, but I don't need to make tons of money at it. It's absolutely, like you say, it's not my, at all my, my driving goal mm-hmm. what, whatsoever. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun. It fulfilled so many, as, as you've mentioned, so many different aspects of, of my life. Um, and, it, and it seems to be going well. I mean, our, our ratings so far are really good. That's great. So, yeah, I'd, I'd just like to get another season and, and do all right with it. Um, and, and we should give a shout out to your wife. Oh, who God. is the Bjorling in the Bjorling and Grant, yeah. right? Well, or- by, by name only. By name only, because she, uh, she's in medical devices. So she has a, a fantastic medical device business, uh-huh. consulting business. There's no way I do any of this without that. Uh, but there's no way our family gets to do much of any. This is not an aw shucks thing about Lisa. Uh, Lisa has, has been the rock of this, this whole thing. And, and uh, letting me chase after this for what really is at least the PBS portion for six years, uh, she never, ever said, yeah, you should maybe figure something else out now, buddy. <laughs> you know, you know try, try, your, try chasing after something else for a little while. She, she actually said, no, look, you got to, it's, it's happening. Hmm. It's happening sometime. So Chase, keep, keep yeah, going that, after that it. kind of support and partnership and partners who do different things is sometimes the key to all of this. Oh, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So no, there's, there's no way around it with, without Lisa. So are you working on season two? Do you know, where do you want to go next? Uh, well, next. So in, in very general terms, you know, we'll, we'll, this time we'll do, so PBS would prefer it if we did, and PBS wants us to do a second season, but 
PBS doesn't have to pay us. Mm-hmm. So I have to go. It's easy for them to say, mm-hmm. I have to go out and get it funded. But that, that aside, they want us to do 12 to 13 episodes. I could see 10 because if I'm, again, doing most of it myself, it's a lot of work. Do you enjoy all the aspects of this? Not the fundraising. Okay. The fundraising is, is just, uh, it's torturous. Yeah. Uh, until someone's on board. I mean, as Gustavus will, will tell you, I, like in this podcast, I, it, it's not just, you know, Gustavus. I love that they jumped on board because they, they made it happen. So to me, a sponsor has my absolute undying gratitude mm-hmm. uh, for, for getting involved with this. So, but, but up until the response, it's like, oh my God, please mm-hmm. don't make me go through this again. But yeah, we'll, we'll talk to like airlines or small ship cruise lines or hotels or, you know, anyone that, yeah. that wants to give us money. But places, uh, this time we'll do, that's where it was, this time we'll do three or four domestic episodes. Oh. Uh, uh, certainly three in the States. Maybe I have one in mind in, in Canada, uh, then probably a couple in South America. So are you always researching like yeah. weird little groups of artists and always. things? Okay. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's like anything that you start to look into, then, then you get more and more in your feed and stuff. Yeah. And so I just save all these articles as, as we're going along and check in on them and, and see if it's, it's interesting. And you know, you want to be just from a production standpoint, you want to have uh, locations that look different from each other. So, mm. you know, I'm not going to shoot uh, two, two episodes on the same island or in, in, in the same general geographical area because it'll look the same. Mm-hmm. So you do have to run around the world at different places. But, yeah. you know, yeah, I have places. I have maybe 30 places right now. Um, I want to do a, a, a rapid round with um, advice from Ian Grant, on because I feel like you can offer advice on several different subjects. Let's start with TV and yeah. entertainment. For people who want that path, what should they know? It's, you, <laughs> it takes a long time. You have to, you have to chase after it, uh, and you have to be ready and willing to fail over and over and over again uh, and be willing to go back in. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have to be willing to accept criticism and, and say, okay, maybe I do suck at that. Or, you know, I mean, honestly, because mm-hmm. if, if you don't, or if you're, so, if you're really confident about it and, and think, uh, you know, screw that person, I'm going to stay with what I think I'm doing, more power to you, but it, it will, you know, that'll limit your, you, you might have to balance that out a yeah. little bit seems like you also have to kind of know your own lines, right? Like yeah. you did, what you were willing to do to yeah. be on camera and where you're like, no, yeah, not for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. What about travel for people who want and crave adventure travel? Yeah. Where should we go? Yeah, you should, you should try and get, I, I always feel like you should have two flights involved uh, to get to a place if you want adventure. And I love, you know, I, with COVID and stuff, I, I, we did all these road trips and stuff. I love traveling around the United States. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying, but if we're talking adventure travel outside the United States, mm-hmm. think two flights. Because one it's flight- It's not legit unless you it's, it's not. Yeah, you got to have a transfer involved. <laughs> and not a domestic transfer in Atlanta. That doesn't count. Got to so, be a little rickety yeah, and a little yeah, small, the, small yeah, the, prop plate. Exactly. The okay. food coming down the aisle has to be different than what you got on you uh-huh. know, your, your first flight. If, if the menu changes, 
then you know you're getting out into an exotic, well, not exotic, an interesting place. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, be willing to, to add eight hours to something. Hmm. Eight hours is not that much for a life, potentially life-changing trip. Yeah. It really isn't. And finally, all the artists, all the interesting people that you meet in all of these far-off places, if you had to pin it down to one theme, you know, and, and one message that you try to weave throughout Culture Quest, what is it? What do you learn from all of this? You, you learn. That one's an, an easy one, and I love it. Uh, I'm picking by nature places and artists that are doing interesting, sometimes exotic-looking, unusual things. So, so you have that element. But when you get past that and start talking to all these people, all these artists, all these people in these different cultures, there's such commonality with people around the world uh, that the, the golden eagle hunters, the nomads out in Mongolia, want the same thing as the farmer in, in you know, North Dakota or the person up on the range uh, in Virginia. They want to they make a living. They want to have, if they have kids, they want their kids to do well. They want a happy future. They want, they want you know, to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. That's the same for every single person around the world. And to me, I love that, that you can look at the golden eagle hunter or this uh, artist in Ghana or this aboriginal Yongu hip-hop artist and think, oh, my God, this is crazy. But, oh, my God, I totally get this guy. Uh, he, has, he wants the same things that I want. Hmm. Yeah. I like that. It's yeah. a great way to, to bring it all together. Yeah, absolutely. The show is Culture Quest. Everyone needs to check it out on yeah. PBS. Tell PBS how much you love it and how they should give Ian some more money. Over and over again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ian, it's so much fun to, to follow along on your journeys near and far and uh, wish you continued success it's with the show. It's been a blast. I really appreciate you getting me in here. Yeah. Glad you're finally getting to do the, the project that's meant for you. Me too. Me too. Thanks a lot. <laughs> What a story, what a career. Ian's life sounds so good, doesn't it? Traveling, appreciating art, working with his hands, doing exactly what he loves to make a living. Could the rest of us do it too? Well, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where John McVeigh, fellow Irishman, is an associate professor of entrepreneurship. John, should we all just get out there and follow our dreams? Um... Well, clearly, if you're an Irish person, that is a huge advantage. <laughs> and obviously, his Irish mother has had a great influence on his success. But, but, but beyond that, um, I think that's actually a particularly dangerous conclusion to draw. And it's one I see a lot at universities given to young people. You know, we all hear these graduation speeches where people say, just follow your dreams. Just do what you love. It'll be great. And I hear entrepreneurs after their career come to the class all the time say, saying this to our young students who are often sitting there going, I don't know what my dreams are. And I've got a huge academic debt right now. And I need a plan. This is, are you telling me I should just go and follow my dreams? My parents will go crazy. <laughs> so, so I think it is a particularly dangerous because I think what we can say is in story illustrates Yes, you can follow your dreams, and that's a fantastic thing to do. And yes, it can come true, but it doesn't come true by accident. And that there are certain ways and attitudes to approach the world and attitudes with which to follow your dreams, which are going to more likely lead to success. 
and just an aimless following of our dreams is probably not going to lead to success and is, 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 is a worrying advice to, to get. So one, one of my colleagues, Sarasvati, has sort of formulated this in, into four principles, four principles that people can follow. And they're more attitudes and um, uh, mindsets um, with which are more likely to help your dreams come true. And these are, you, you know, if you ask, ask me to go into these in more depth afterwards, I'd be delighted to. But they're the burden hand principle, they're the lemonade principle, the quick, crazy quilt principle, and the affordable loss principle. Okay, well, give us, you the have crash, those hardware, give us the crash course. What, what is the burden the hand principle? Well, the burden hand principle is simply that, uh, you know, the, the burden the hand is worth two in the bush. Start <laughs> with what you have. Start with what resources do you have? Who do you know? What do you know? What have you got at hand? Mm -hmm. And start there. Don't start with where could this be in 10 years? Hmm. And how do I get the resources to get there? Start with what you have. And you can see in Ian's story, uh, you know, he does that. Right, right. Making furniture, understanding how to sell and how to make things and, and get to the next step. Lemonade principle. What's that? The lemonade principle is something he articulated directly, which is fail, 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 hmm. because the inverse of failure is learning. Um, one of my other favorite uh, young entrepreneurs, Tristan Walker, who started uh, African-American shaving products business, and he always talks about, you know, don't differentiate between your trials and your blessings, because your trials are your blessings. Hmm. It sounds corny, but it is absolutely true. Most entrepreneurs will tell you. Most of their big insights came from mistakes, came from accidents that they then stopped and say, what can I do with this? Mm -hmm. What can I learn from this error? And we see that all the way through Ian's story right. of failure turning into the next success. Right. Okay. Crazy quilt. Crazy quilt principle is stop saying you can do this all on your own. This is not the story of the heroic entrepreneur, you know, tearing up trees by themselves is really not realistic. Most successful entrepreneurs catch together a bunch of relationships all the way through their career. They never let go of their relationships. They never get low of their contacts. They treat them as human beings because they genuinely like them, but they never know where they're going to be useful again in the future. And you see, you know, things like Gustavus come in and out of his story. Mm -hmm. You see his his wife's support coming in and out of his story. You see the, you know, the, the Navad brothers coming in and out of the story. How are these partnerships and relationships that you have keep them all live all the time right. not instrumentally but you never know when these will come back into the frame and actually be the final piece of the puzzle that you're trying to complete sure don't burn bridges that's for sure exactly and then talk about affordable loss affordable loss is particularly important right so one way of thinking about how we do look at, and i say i love that this is an artistic story and yet he brings in finances so regularly um instead of saying what is the ultimate finances how how will it how much will this thing be worth in 20 years and therefore how much can i borrow and how much risk can i take to win the prize instead of that that spends a lot of time speculating about how much risk can i bear and what will the risk be in the future which of course no one knows the affordable loss principle says only take on as much uh, debt or risk as you can afford to lose and walk away unscathed. Mm. If you can set up your business model so that you could fail and walk away the next day without being destroyed, then risk becomes irrelevant. Hmm. 
Hmm. Right. If you only are taking what is an affordable loss initially, then you can afford to experiment and gamble and risk to your heart's content because you're never going to destroy yourself with failure. So affordable loss is a really, really important way to think about setting up your business in the early stages. Well, it's it's really comforting to think that if you put all of those experiences and failures and steps along the way and you put it all together, you can finally get to where you want to be and doing the thing that you love. And suddenly following a dream seems a lot more scientific. Absolutely. And, and, and the important thing is to remember is following your dream is good, but you have to have a certain attitudes and certain deter- goals that you are principles that you stick to determinedly in order to follow your dream and right. succeed. Don't aimlessly following a dream is not a recipe for success. Right. I love something you said earlier, John McVeigh. Hope is not a plan. No. Good to have a plan. Thank you so much for the great advice as always. John McVeigh, Associate Professor from the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Thank you again for our presenting sponsorship from the University of St. Thomas. And thank you for listening to By All Means. teamwork to make by all means and we've got some all-stars thanks to our audio engineer tom for digital support is ricky hannigan and dan nepo thanks to the university of st thomas senior media relations manager vanita sakar and associate dean of the schultz school of entrepreneurship laura dunham for all their help our theme music is by song finch hope you enjoyed by all means <laughs> <laughs>